DJ and PK brought to you in part by Mark Miller. DJ and PK in the morning brought to you by Mark Miller Subaru. Time to welcome in Brian Taylor. You hear him on Real Golf Radio every Saturday morning here on the Zone Sports Network. BT, good morning. Good morning, guys. We usually talk to you around the majors, and we will do that with the Masters coming up, but uh, major golf news here with Tiger Woods and the the one-car wreck. And I think the thing we all thought, and I assume you thought it too, when you saw the, the either the video or the still pictures of the car, it's just it's a good thing he survived this. Before we get to the golf, we need to acknowledge that. Uh, without a doubt, you know, I mean, it's always disturbing to hear news like this. You know, we've we've heard of Tiger Woods, um, you know, news of, of involving traffic incidents in the past, and it's. Um, it's always a, you know, it's always a, a, an unnerving thing. You know, I mean, one day you're doing a, you know, you're hosting a tournament on the PGA tour and doing an interview with Jim Nance talking about, uh, hoping to come back and be ready for the masters. And the next thing, you know, you hear about a car accident that uh, is severe and that he's in surgery and, and, uh, you don't know. Right. And, uh, looking at the wreckage, um, it, I think the LA County uh, deputy said it best, you know, it's a sort of a marvel of modern vehicle safety uh, features that allow someone to survive a crash that otherwise would be, would have been fatal. You still think he is the face of golf? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, if you were to say is who's the face of golf, I, I, I don't, I don't think you could make an argument for someone other than, than Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, he's, he's certainly done more um, for the game and, and, and especially been more successful and, and uh, popularized the game more than anyone since probably Arnold Palmer in the 60s when TV first started showing golf. So, yeah, I, I think Tiger's still the face of golf. So of everything you've heard and everything you've read, when will the face of golf be back on a golf course? Because it doesn't sound like it'll be any time soon of what they're talking about with his right leg. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like it was you know, specifically the right leg and uh, maybe both legs a bit. Um, there were, you know, we learned some words, right? <laughs> learned, you know, he basically it's the shin bone and the bone that goes around the calf, so it's all below his knee, uh, the, around the fibula and tibula, uh, tibia, and then, um, you know, this uh, I can't even remember the name of the word they used, but it's basically it was it was broken multiple times. Um, so, you, you know, I think most people just say shattered, but there was a more um, a technical term for that, and. And then there was also a compound uh, fractures, so it was breaking the skin. So it was pretty bad. Uh, I mean, this is this is nasty stuff. And um, you know, I talked to an orthopedic surgeon friend of mine. He'll be joining the show uh, this weekend to talk more in detail. But he expects that uh, you know, with the rod and the pins and the screws and everything that was done to him that was during the emergency surgery, that he will be able to walk again. That he'll be able to play golf again. And um, I, I asked him kind of a time frame, and, and he said most people would probably be a year, and they'd be happy about it. He said, no one Tiger is probably going to be, you know, six months, uh, and he's going to be back at it. So, um, you know, I asked him if there's still a possibility of uh, infection, like what Alex Smith battled, and he said absolutely. Um, that's that's really something that they'll be watching. So, you know, it's not it's not done yet, but um, you know, Tiger has been through a lot, you know, four knee surgeries, five back surgeries, still recovering from the one. So how, how did that impact it? You know, certainly a, a crash like that would have put some, some stress on, a, on, a, on an ailing back as well. So, you know, I think there's a lot that we still need to, to find out, but I think there's definitely hope that we'll see Tiger and, and probably, you know, best case scenario expectations we'll see Tiger back on the golf course at, at what level and, 
and 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 how good you know i guess that all remains to be seen but uh, like i said the, the one thing we know about tiger is he's he's tough and and he's come back his body has recovered from a whole lot we saw a great outpouring by obviously former pros and current touring pros what is his standing amongst his peers as far as obviously they respect him but i'm talking about liking him yeah, it's a good one, BK, because I think that uh, in the beginning, uh, I think Tiger was a bit of a recluse. You know, he was uh, an intimidating figure out there that was really focused on himself and 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 breaking um, records. You know, and doing things that others hadn't done before. And you know, and uh, I think a, a lot of his you know fifteenth club in the bag was you know the way he went about his work uh, on the golf course. And not only did he involve the fans in in that intimidation, you know, getting them roaring and the fist pumps and you know, just sort of overpowering a golf course and, and winning at a clip that, that we hadn't seen before. Um, and, and that didn't take a lot of friends. He didn't take a lot of friends with him. I mean, Marco Mira was about his only notable friend out there. I mean, he got to be pretty good buddies with Fred Couples as, as time went on. But, you know, you didn't hear about him palling around with a lot of the guys. And um, that's, that's certainly changed in the last few years. Uh, you know, I mean, Tiger's gone through a lot, you know, off the golf course as well. And, He's, he's reached out, you know, and to the younger players, the, the Ricky Fowlers, Justin Thomases, you know, those types of, of guys. And, and he's, he's definitely more gregarious now. And I think at, at the 20 plus years that we've covered Tiger Woods out on tour, I think he's probably most well liked and well received and more human, I guess, um, uh, friendly to, to others than we've ever known him out there. And I think that's something that he's come to learn and appreciate that you know that's that's a fraternity he wants to be a part of and at times when he wasn't sure he'd be able to be back out there i think he missed it and 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 realized uh you know how much he appreciated the the gregarious nature of of the tour and so he's made an effort and i don't think he made much of an effort at all in in the early stages and maybe that was some of the coaching that and training that he had from his dad you know who was uh you know a former marine and and that type of thing so um there's it's interesting to see the evolution and, and lately you've hear, heard more comments from tiger about you know how he's just enjoying the chance to be around his family and then watch his kids grow up and play ball with his kids and and then most recently we saw him in december before this latest back surgery playing golf with his son charlie at the father son and and that meant a ton to him and so all those things are are evolutions you know in his career to where he's accepting the fact that he's not uh, at, at the elite level he once was that there'll still maybe be flashes and moments where he'll bust out and win and win again, um, but he's going to appreciate the time that he that he has and the opportunity that he has out there, and maybe relish a little bit about the career that he that he was able to put together. So when he was number one, and he had the intimidation factor, and it was useful, the only relationships he really built were with guys like O'Meara and Couples, who were from a generation previous, and they knew they weren't battling for number one anymore. But now the Tiger's not battling for number one. As you say, it's more about flashes and that week when everything comes together. Now he can afford those relationships and doesn't cost him a chance to win the way it did, or it might have early on. Why give yeah, up the intimidation factor? Right, I think there's something to that. I think that, you know, Tiger was, was, was trained and programmed to you know, win at all costs. I, I shared this story last night. I'll just, just briefly I had a chance to visit with him in 2005 after we just found out he had a knee surgery and and I asked him, um, you know, in a private setting, I'm like, how, how could you go out and play like that without letting anybody know that you were, you know, that you were hurt to the point where you were going to require knee surgery? And he gave me this steely stare. This is like in 2005, I think. He gave me this steely stare, and he says, never let your, your competition know you're hurt. To hell with them. 
And I, I was like, whoa, whoa, I'm, I'm just asking the question. I'm not, I'm not, not one of your, it literally was like a death stare. And uh, I just caught a little glimpse of that killer instinct that, that Tiger had. And, and I remember kind of chuckling to Bob later, like, you know, Phil Mickelson doesn't have that. And uh, that was, uh, they were the two rivals back in the day. And, and uh, anyway, it was just interesting. It was, it was a little brief insight and I can't claim to have a lot, but that was one of those little brief insights to what I saw out of a out of a competitor that just wanted to win at all costs, and I think that that was Tiger for most of his career. All right, uh, an uncomfortable question: Does Tony Finau have that? Uh, that is an uncomfortable question. Um, God, you know, um, I, I mean, Tony is way nicer than Tiger. <laughs> Let's just say it, right? I mean, right, Tony is right. a, is a go go ahead. No, I'm agreeing with you. I agree oh, with you, yes. Brian. Yeah, yeah, he's like he is like there's 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 it'd be tough to find a nicer guy in or out of sports than Tony Fina and genuine, not not just when the cameras are on or or anything genuine. Um, does he have the ability to just step on a guy's throat? I think that's that's something that we debate. I I have no question that you that he has that burning inside him. Um, he doesn't have the um, outward demonstrative displays that you might see out of some athletes. Like, I mean, John Rahm and he are good friends on tour and Rahm is the opposite, right? I mean, I think Rahm's a great guy too. Nice person, but he is like, boy, he has his, his, you know, he lets it out. Right. And you know, when he's upset or, or things aren't going well. And, and Tony is, has done a really good job of holding it in. I don't, I don't want to be critical of a guy like that. In fact, I think it's more impressive that if somebody competing at that highest level, he has to have that burning inside of him. And for him to be able to control his emotions and always have perspective, regardless of the outcome, I think that is that is a, a high-quality trait in somebody and not something to, to um, criticize him for not showing that type of anger or emotion when it doesn't go his way. So it's hard for me to say on an outward scale that Tony doesn't have it. He doesn't seem to display it the same way as a Tiger Woods or, like as I just mentioned, to John Rahm. But I'm not so sure that means it's a weakness or that he can't win. I, I, I think he's got the talent, and, and I think he has um, the ability to, to close things out on Sunday. And it's just it's a bit of a pro, you know, progression. And sometimes, I mean, we look at a David Duvall. It took him a long time. It took Phil a long time to win majors, you know, even though he was winning other tournaments at a high clip. So um, we'll, we'll see. I guess I'm not, not ready to say he doesn't have that. I, I will say that I don't think very many people have what Tiger had or has, you know, I, I think that's pretty unique and comes, you know, Tiger's a once in a generational type of athlete, you know, for our sport. And, and I don't, I just, I don't think comparing anything of Tiger to anybody in particular is probably a fair comparison. Well, I'd agree with that last point. I would say there's absolutely no chance that Tony Finau has what Tiger has. It's not even remotely close, but to your point, so few people have what Tiger has. I mean, it's literally a handful across multiple sports. So I'd compare. I'd take PK's question, but I'd phrase: Does does Tony have what say Phil has? Because while Phil pales in comparison to the attitude Tiger walked around with, Phil does have a little bit of that, and we see it even now when it's a fun event and they're mic'd up. Like Phil's a world class trash talker, so he's got <laughs> a little bit of that, or he wouldn't pop off and say the stuff he does. The stuff he says is hilarious. For PK and I sitting in front of our TVs watching it, it's like, okay, that's a funny line. But he's still got a little bit of that in a competitive times, and it did take him a while to win major championships and figure it out. So I guess the question is, is Tony on the path to win championships and figure it out? Maybe not win to the level Phil did, because Phil's still a, certainly a top 20 and maybe a top 10 golfer all time. 
but to get one or two majors and to get 10 tour wins, I guess that's the level I'm wondering if Tony can get to. Because I think he has the talent to get to that level, and he's still got the time to get to that level, but he's got to get going. And when he's standing over a putt like he stood over on uh, the first playoff hole in L.A., you don't have to be a bad guy. You just got to make that putt. And if you make the putt, you win the tournament. Uh, yeah, you, you, I mean you're spot on, right? I mean he had a, about a six and a half footer to close it out, and you know what? Great champions do that. They take it, they seize the moment, and they make it happen. Um, I mean, you, you know, even Max Homa. So those are two guys that were in a playoff that were both searching for their their second PGA Tour win. I don't think there's anyone out there that would suggest that Max Homa, who now has twice as many tour wins as Tony Finau was the more superior golfer in that playoff. I think everyone recognizes Tony's talent and, and that they expected him to win. And so when he doesn't, it's, it's tough, right? And um, so there, there's some things that he's going to have to learn. I mean, on, uh, you know, making that putt when you're given the opportunity. Max Homa missed a little bunny on the 72nd hole or there wouldn't have even been a playoff. So, you know, he was able to dig deep, come back, find a way, find a shot off of that tree you know, make a par, move on, and win. And those are the kind of things that Tony's still working through. I mean, clearly, he's got to be able to do that. And But but you can't knock the guy for shooting a, a, a tournament, you know, uh, weekly, you know, the tournament low score for the week in the final round to chase him down and, and just not get it done. But when you're teeing off first in a playoff, um, you know, hit the middle of the green. Put the pressure on the guy behind you to have to hit the green on that par three instead of going at the flag and having to draw a little too much and finding the bunker short side. I mean, those are... Those are some things that you're going to, yeah, you have to break that down and put that in your bag and, and figure out how to overcome those so that when you do get opportunities to win, you know, you, let's go back to the Masters. He's in the final group. He's matching Tiger shot for shot till he gets to 12, and he hits a chip cut nine iron to a right flag. And with that win, you do not cut to that flag on, on 12, on sun, to the Sunday flag. You don't do it. If you saw what Tiger did, he took it straight over the bunker. You know, those are some things that you just have to learn in certain situations when to press and when not to press. So um, do I think he can get to 10 wins on tour and, and win three or three majors? I, I still do. Like you said, DJ, he's got time. He's got the talent. Uh, I think he just has to put that last little combination of, you know, how to close out tournaments. And, uh, and I, I think he definitely has it, I, and I expect him to do it. And at the same time, it was disappointing. I mean, this guy's got everybody in the state rooting for him and probably every Polynesian who's ever been born or yet to be born or has been born in a great beyond. So he's got, in terms of popularity, it literally is off the charts. Uh, so with that in mind, he's not going to be defined by missing a putt at the L.A. Open, nor is he going to be defined by winning the LA Open. For him, as you say, there's much bigger stuff out there. So that's why I I didn't really sweat it that he didn't make that putt. It's not like he doesn't want to win. I get all that. But the LA Open, it's nice to have. But you look at somebody like Kepka, who I brought up the other I think on Monday, mm-hmm. that I, I think on the on the tour, he only really I think he was like a, he, he only has eight wins. He's got some other wins in the European Tour and whatnot. But on the PJ Tour, he's got eight wins. But four of them are majors, right? So he stands out. So I think that that's the goal. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to get your response to it. Going forward here, I would have been way more dismayed if that's in six weeks in Augusta when he misses that what you labeled the six-and-a-half-footer than the L.A. Open. I, I want to know, as far as the mindset, 
to be able to do it then? Because I think that's what's going to define Finau in 10 years or so as he ages out of it and gets closer to the senior tour, whatever they call it now. Respond to that. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the the major Tiger put Jack, I think even more so, uh, began the, the focus on majors. Tiger followed that up and made the emphasis on major championships. You're, golf, professional golfers, the PGA Tour, um, European Tour, professional golf in general, they're measured, tour players, are measured by the, the majors, right? That is the measuring stick. And so you're, you're 100% right. I mean, Brooks Kepka has got immortality with, his, with the way he went on that major streak. You know, even if he only has the, the single-digit wins. Um, so that, that is where you actually absolutely make your career. So if Tony goes out and wins a couple of majors and those are the only tournaments he ends up winning, um, is that a bigger deal than picking up the LA Open in Puerto Rico? 100%, right? I mean, there's not even, that's not even an argument. But, you know, I mean, Andy North won two tournaments in his career, and both of them were U.S. Opens. And Andy North doesn't exactly get the same level of respect that, that some of the other players. I would suggest that, you know, um, Tony's had a better career than, than Andy North. And some people, and you could argue that. He's got two U.S. Opens. What, what are we going to say? But um, I, I just think it's, um, I, I think Tony, um, back to your point, uh, he ha- has to have it done in the majors. You know, he's, Boyd Summerhays' coach says that he's built for big tournaments. We've seen in his career that, you know, I think the best tournament to yet in his young career back in 2015 was in, uh, was in Washington at the PGA Championship, or the U.S. Open there at Chambers Bay. You know, and it was a big golf course. It was a tough golf course, and Tony played the best that he'd played there. And we've started to see that over and over uh, where he, you know, the bigger the course, the bigger the tournament, it seems to be the better Tony plays. And, you know, we saw him in contention at Shinnecock, you know, when Brooks ended up beating him there. And, you know, he just – He's, he keeps putting himself there, and I have to think a, a, a player that's able to continue to put himself there is going to be able to break through and win one there. Now, it's, it's an interesting study. I'm not a sports psychologist, but you can go back, and, and one of the interesting things about Brooks Kepka, he went, a, he went a tough route. He went over to the European Tour, and it was basically the European Challenge Tour, like the, the web.com Corn Ferry Tour of the European Tour. And he went over there, and he got some wins. And that boosted him up to the European Tour, and he got some wins, and he got into some world ranking points, which got him into some PGA Tour events. So he did it winning. Now, Tony turned pro real early uh, as a teenager and you know, didn't get a chance to play college golf. And, and a lot of the things that Bob talks about on our show is this progress of winning when you win at all levels you know, and, and just understanding how to win. And I guess the one thing you could say is Tony hasn't had that per se, you know, the way some of the other guys have done. I mean, you look at Tiger's career, he dominated junior golf. He dominated at Stanford in college golf, and then he immediately went out and dominated tour golf. Now, again, Tiger's obviously, as we've, as we've established, is, is not like any other player. But that's the one thing that maybe Tony's resume doesn't have is a long history of winning at those various levels. And so, you know, maybe that's just a, a little hump that he's got to get over. But I can't, I don't think you can find anybody out there that feels like once he gets the one, it's going to open the floodgates. And, and, uh, cause Tony's such a different player than he was from Puerto Rico years ago. And, and I think there's a lot still to be had for Tony. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's, those are the thoughts that come to mind. Well, we appreciate a few minutes as always. Real Golf Radio coming up on uh, Saturday morning every week right here on the Zone Sports Network. Brian Taylor join us, and he and Bob Castro will be here on Saturday. Brian, thanks for a few minutes to talk a little Tony because a lot of people are really invested in him. Boy, you can just see it on Twitter. It's like, come on, Tony, do it. It's a lot harder to, to, to watch golf when you're rooting for somebody than when you're just watching it play through, that's for sure. So yeah. we're all wishing Tony the best, man. All right, thanks, Brian. You got it.
All right, when we come back, Tim Lacombe, Utah Jazz Radio Studio Analyst. It's the Jazz and it's the Lakers tonight. Tim's coming up next. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. I've always kind of felt like this is Rudy's team. That The wins and losses fall on Rudy. But in the fourth quarter and, and the image of the team, it's Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell will continue to be the image of the Utah Jazz because he's the high flyer. He's the showpiece. He's the guy that gets the possessions in the fourth quarter, that either scores the points or doesn't score the points. So of course he's going to be the focal point. But Rudy Gobert is the heavy lifter. What the Jazz are with him off the court as opposed to what they are on the court, it's dramatic. He is the best defensive big in the NBA, and it's not even close. Now there's some bigs out there that can do some really special things on the offensive side, looking at you, Joker, but on the defensive side, nobody touches what Rudy Gobert can do and how he alters the game in so many different ways. Hanson Scotting, weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Seven five at twelve eight in the zone. We're brought to you in part by Davis Vision. Davis Vision's New Year special continues through February. Save a thousand dollars off normal pricing now through the end of the month. Check them out now at DavisVisionMD.com. Tim, you got a couple of backup singers. Tim Lacombe joins us now. He doesn't sound like an assistant basketball coach right now. He sounds really good. You guys are like the doo-wop boys. Oh, yeah. I was totally lip-syncing in here, but I don't want my voice to wreck this. But Yach, Yach will tell you, yeah, DJ's in your lip-syncing. And he also knows that I shouldn't make any noise when I sing. It's much better if I just <laughs> just lip-sync it. All right, Tim. Big... It's been about a week, right? Hasn't been that long a time since we visited. <laughs> Hey, you're doing games every day. It's never that long a time before you're back in studio, is it? Getting a whole oh new appreciation gosh, for the NBA grind? <laughs> Holy cow. It is unbelievable. Like, I feel like I'm on, um, like, nights I have off for, like, manna from heaven. And I love watching it. I love being in there. But it's just, it is so much work, man. It's great, though. Yeah. And it's great, it's great that uh, it's a lot of work around a, a sizzling hot team. Oh, yeah. You're doing the right year. <laughs> <laughs> you are absolutely doing the right year. You sat through some, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, the PK and I have been doing this for 20 years. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about teams that were good, teams that were mediocre, and teams that were bad. I mean, you can go look it up. It's no secret. And when I did the five years of TV pre-half and post, they were mostly pretty good then. It was it was basically the heart of the D-Will, Carlos Boozer you know, so they were they were fifty win teams and and they were winning a playoff series most years. Um, That's cool. But uh, <laughs> talking to Thurl, who then had to go through the rebuild, I'm like Thurl, man. I would text him like, "This looks like hard work tonight, Thurl," and he's like, "You're so lucky." Because <laughs> what do you say? Yeah. Everybody knows you're rebuilding, right? And it's all about the draft, but you got to do twenty games before you get to the draft and. You know, get the payoff. So as you yeah, wa- you got to get down to the, the right. screen level. You got to talk about screens every <laughs> night. 
So the Jazz are playing the Lakers, and I'm curious, uh, does this stand out to you? Is it a big game among the many because it is the Lakers and it's LeBron? Or because they're missing a couple of really important players after LeBron, does that take the edge off this one for you? No, I still think it's the Lakers and and it's LeBron. And, you know, if he were to be out, I'd probably feel different, you know, if it were just AD for, per se. But there's something about LeBron and, you're, you know, what he's capable of doing pretty close to by himself. Um, he's getting up there in age, but he's still playing at such a great level and um, is, in my mind, one of the greats of all time. So uh, it, it's one that definitely got my attention. I, I've you know, a little more excited prepping for the Lakers than, than others. Yeah, I can understand that. To me, at this point, when you have the best record in the league, though, it's nearly not about the opposition. You've earned this opportunity to say you have the best record in the league. So I don't really care who's coming in, who's not coming in with their team and all. It's about the Jazz, and if Jazz, if they, if they do what they do, they should, they're not going to win them all, obviously, but they should have an opportunity to win all these games. That's my mindset. Well, and that doesn't surprise me because you're, you know, I mean, you're, I imagine that's how you treat the neighbors. You know, if you're going to walk by my house, you're going to stand at attention. Um, get a chuckle out of you. A little Maybe. bit. Yeah, I heard I it. Did. I did. Yeah. I did. I okay, did. Okay, perfect. Uh, no, the, uh, the one thing I will say, is, you know, I, I checked it tonight. The Jazz are eight and a half point favorites tonight. And, um, you know, like you said, there's, there's some missing pieces there for the Lakers, but still, uh, that that just kind of that that's a you know I could see four and a half five with LeBron but eight and a half that just shows the really how well this team's playing what they're thought of out there uh, what the numbers say most importantly because that's what Vegas is all about is the numbers they don't care about feelings it's all numbers and um, and the Jazz have just kind of continued to, to chug along I mean this last game against Charlotte was so crazy because I. In the pregame, after watching the film, after looking at all the matchup numbers and everything else, I honestly felt a blowout. And, you know, for about three quarters, I was a little bit uncomfortable because I went and had to put myself out there, which I don't know if I'll do that again. But uh, I tweeted out, hey, I'm smelling a blowout. But lo and behold, you know, it was a blowout, and it was all done in about four and a half, five minutes. Um, And that's what's scary about this team, too, is the sportability. And the reason they can do that is they're elite defensively. Uh, the key to this whole run has been the number of times they've gone on a 10-0 run, which is hard to do. Uh, and they do it all the time. And the key to that is the other team has zero. You know, the Jazz find a way to get that separation in a game. So are the spurts and, as you put it, the spurtability – uh, do we have to rethink the way we think of that, though? Is uh, Because of the three-point shot, the way you used to look at a 10-0 run or a 10-point lead, shouldn't we be thinking about that now? It's a 15 or, I don't know if I can go 20. I don't know. How do you look at it? Because it just seems like these leads, they don't mean what they used to mean. Well, I can totally see that. But I, but with the Jazz, I think they kind of do. Um, and I, to your point, I mean, it t- 10, the Jazz were down, you know, as many as 10 the other night, seems like, to Charlotte, 9 or 10 anyway. It was 11 at 81.70. Okay, and that's 11. When, that's when they went on their 41 to 11 run, and you started feeling okay. better about your Twitter feed. Yeah, so um, with the Jazz, I feel because they play 
so good and so so good defensively um and, and they're really kind of locked in the 10 run is meaningful for them because it's hard for a team to really kind of put a run to back on them once they hit you with one but you're right i mean i think 10 points anymore that's three trips down the floor and you're in a one point game so it's definitely different and uh it's uh yeah you probably you're probably right majority of the league but i think the jazz at 10 run still means something because of the way they guard so the one thing that concerns me tonight is the law of averages man and these guys were unbelievably hot the other night. So I'm concerned about there's a little drop-off because there's no way you can shoot like that over and over again. How much concern do you have? Well, we're only talking about what they shoot 50% from three. 50, what was it, 50, David, you're the number guy. Uh, it was 28 to 55, so it was probably 51 yeah, to 52. 55. I'd have to look it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, they're, they're 10% higher than, 10, 12% higher than, than their normal average, but... Uh, what's been pretty constant with his team is, uh, you know, they're going to get about 43s up a night. And what has also been a constant is they're going to shoot nearly 40%. So, yeah, I, I don't see them, you know, hitting 50 all that often. But in the NBA, at that quantity of shots, you know, to, be, to make close to 40% of them, I know they've hovered right around 40% uh, for the majority. We talk a lot on the pre and post about, Taking 43s and making 40% of them is quite a feat, that 40-40 club. And the Jazz are the only ones that have kind of touched that this year. But um, I, I don't. it doesn't make me nervous that uh, you know the threes will just disappear and the law of averages will come back because the law of averages in the Jazz case are still pretty good. So while I do look at how much they make and worry about the law of averages, I think the thing that's not getting nearly the attention is how many do you take? You can't make it if you don't shoot it. And 55 threes is a lot to take, but Charlotte was offering him up because they were trying to clog up the lane and bring in a third defender, so there were three-pointers out there. But the Clippers held him to 34 attempts. Now, how many makes are you going to have if you're only going to take 34 yeah. in a game? And I say only 34. They didn't average that two years ago. But every year, Quinn's got him taking more. You know, the numbers don't lie. Every year he's been here, their three-point attempts have gone up. But clearly for the best teams in the league, aren't they going to limit how many they attempt? Whether they go in or not, they're going to spend 48 minutes trying to limit how many the Jazz attempt. Yeah, and, there's you know, teams have done that all year. Um, and, and really you can kind of look at the box score at the end of the game and you can you could formulate, if you watched enough, you can formulate what the defense did that night. You know, if Rudy's attempts are way up off of his average, you know they're hugging shooters. Um, I made the comment after the Clipper game, I really do believe the Clippers are probably um, one of a few because I know there's probably some, you know, like, for instance, Minnesota. The way Minnesota came in here and guarded, um, they were able to put a lot of pressure, be really physical, switch everything. Um, And... and I'll tell you what, the Clippers did an unbelievable job. Really, if you watch the Clipper game, and there's a way you can actually do this. Go to YouTube and watch those highlights. It's an awesome way. It shows every bucket for both teams. So you can get a a pretty fast synopsis of of the game, but you can also see how the team's guarded. And it's such a stark contrast between the Clipper game where space looked like trying to figure out a way to – 
you know, like in real estate, trying to find a way, a house up on the east bench. Uh, it, it, there's, it's crowded. There's no, there's no space, and and everything's really, really expensive. That's how the Clipper game was. Um, conversely, the Charlotte game, man, there were driving lines, there were space all over the place, um, and it it really was an, an instance in Charlotte where they got beat to a certain point, and then they committed three or four guys to the ball. And so the Jazz had no other option than to kick that thing out and shoot horse shots. And that's really what they did most of the night. Once they were able to kind of manage the turnovers, know that there was guys coming to dig, it was a classic case of overhelping. Um, whereas the Clippers, they were so disciplined, uh, they really only had to commit one, maybe one, a half a guy to the ball. So you're just not playing on the number of advantages you played. And, and that's the Clippers team, maybe one or two others, are capable of doing something very, very similar for a long period of time. But what you'll see most nights is teams are hell-bent on taking away the three. They get absolutely killed inside, and so they start kind of, you know, as, as Locke Polt says, pulls, pull the ripcord on the plan, and then all hell breaks loose. Did the Clipper game give you any long-term concern? Should they meet up in the postseason? Not at all. I mean, mainly because I've actually felt like coming into the year that if the Clippers could get their their stuff right internally, um, that they really were one of the best constructed rosters. And then you add, you know, the the championship kind of element of Kawhi. Um, you know, I'm not a huge, I know Paul George is really talented. I'm just not a huge Paul George guy from a competitive standpoint. I don't know what it is, but I just don't know, uh, if he's done enough yet to earn that from me. Uh, I, I know he's a special talent, but I just don't know it when the money's on the table, what are you going to get? Um, but I still think the Clippers in my mind are a team that, you know, hey, they're going to be out there. They're they're a big time team. They're constructed great, and a series with them will be games just like that. Um, and I don't think either team will run away and hide. Um, I think that you know, in this instance, the, the Clippers got the better of the, better of the Jazz, but they did it by a couple of points at their place. And so a series, you know, that's going to be a culmination of a, of a lot of things. And that's why you really want to try to stay in this first place spot and avoid having to play, you know, maybe the Lakers and the Clippers, let those two guys duel it out. Uh, if, you know, they end up being two and three, and, and then one of them comes to face you after going through that. You know, in the in the Jazz-Clipper game, I think there were multiple... You, you basically saw Paul George's whole career on display. Multiple things he did right, and then multiple things that were horrific. And... The things he did right, you know, the score and the rebound and big plays. But then in the final minute of the game, the turnover, you know, that was bad. It does happen, but it was bad. But to compound it by five, well, before we get to that, by fouling Donovan Mitchell in the backcourt, 70 feet from the hoop, stopping the clock, that's horrific. And you should know that's horrific playing AAU or high school ball. You don't foul a guy 70 feet from the hoop in that situation, and yet he did. And then the fouling on the three, you're just compounding. You're doubling down. You don't do that either. Again, stop the yeah. clock and give a good shooter three free throws. That's a crazy yep. thing to do. And I think those three things are why the red flag goes up. What are you going to get from Paul George in the biggest moments? Yeah, there, so this is – we actually used a, the best we could 
we'd go watch kids play and we actually put a, a score on their, for lack of a better word. I mean, time and score understanding, mm-hmm. uh, Coach Rose always said, you know, I want guys to understand the score and play uh, based on, you know, they, they understand the score, they understand what it takes to win. And, and so we would actually go in there and kind of watch. And I'm telling you, it, it's, it's a kind of a thing that is developed and guys innately have um, initially or it's kind of developed. And, but even at that point, um, you know, where is everybody's mindset? Is it – on individual accolades, is it on what I'm doing after the game, or is it in that moment? And that's the thing, like you said, with Paul George, I, he there's no doubt the guy's so extremely talented. But I just uh, I just wonder when it maybe it all kind of puts gets put together for him in basketball and winning becomes the most important thing. Um, because from outside looking in. Um, you know, I look at this Jazz team, and from last year to this year, the the growth mentally and the maturity that's come from uh, going through what they went through last year. Um, you know, having heartbreaking game seven that really did make these guys go back to the lab and say, "How can we improve?" Um, there's a difference in that, and then just one where, "Hey, I'm getting paid X amount of dollars, I'm gonna go out and hoop," um, and that's the transformation that that I think you're talking about there, or that's the realization for Paul George that I think we're talking about. It's, it's probably every coach that's ever coached him. There's, you know, and I know Cleve, maybe you can ask Cleve about it, but a guy who's just can do so much, but at the same time, you know, how important is it all to him? Tim, as always, we appreciate it. Hope we didn't uh, use all your material because you got an hour on the pregame show tonight before the Jazz and the Lakers. No, I just try to give you my B-roll stuff. Um, <laughs> I save the, the good stuff for the golden folder. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we'll listen to hear what's in the golden folder tonight at 7. But I do sit in your spot over there. I, I, I'm second chair, but I sit on your side, okay. Mr. DJ. All right. Thanks, All Tim. Right, Thanks. Tim Lacombe, Jazz Radio Studio Analyst, former BYU assistant coach, a staff member up at Utah under Rick Jarris as well. And you hear him with Jake Scott, 7 o'clock tonight on Jazz Game Night, the pregame show. The game tips at 8 o'clock. It's on ESPN and AT&T Sportsnet. And David Locke will have the call right here on the Zone Sports Network. Jazz are three and a half games up on the Lakers. A chance to go up four and a half here. All right, coming up, uh, Larry the Laker in the 9 o'clock hour. So we'll hear more about the Lakers. Larry hasn't checked in in a while, hasn't been here to irritate people in a while, but I bet he brings his A game today. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Big Show show. with Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. People who really know basketball thought Mike Conley would make the adjustment quicker than ordinary, but it actually could have worked in the exact opposite way, where he was so entrenched in what he'd been doing. Then he comes to the Jazz, and he's playing with different players, and Quinn wants to play a little differently, and he's got to adjust all that. I always thought he was going to have to fit in with Donovan and Rudy. I think I underestimated how difficult that transition was going to be for him, but what I think it does say is how coachable Mike Conley is. It'd be easy to say, I'm Mike W. Conley. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sit down and pay attention. You might just learn something. You know, that wasn't his take all along. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7. Presented by Big O' Tires. The team you trust. On 97.5 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network.
DJ and PK brought to you in part by The Warehouse. Join Hans and Scotty G, 10 to 2 at The Warehouse, 1825 South, 300 West in Salt Lake City. Price is so low, it'll blow your mind. Boom! That was a different one right there. I don't think you've, I don't think you've shared that you boom them up your booms. If yeah. you're consistent with your booms, they tune out the booms. Believe me. Yeah. No, you got to vary the speed on those pitches, and that's where you really shine. He sped that one up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he'll he'll throw you some seventy nine mile an hour breaking stuff, and then then he'll bring the hundred mile an hour heat. You just don't know what you're going to get out of PK. I can guarantee you that I can throw twenty pitches to Ingles, and he's not going to touch any of them. <laughs> Doubling down, <laughs> that's so you. <laughs> Guy asked me yesterday, "Hey, who was your favorite ASU football player growing up?" I quickly answered without hesitation. I said Frank Cush. The mastermind, to me. the coach. Oh, uh, I see why you went with him. He was a total B.A. I said, yeah, it wasn't about the players. It was about Frank. There's two Franks in my life, Sinatra and Cush, and both of them were bad dudes. Just wanted to check real quick and make sure Frank wasn't from uh, Jersey. I think he's from... Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania or yeah, something. Yeah, Pennsylvania, some small town in, in Pennsylvania. Yes. All right, question of the morning. Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert make their second consecutive All-Star team. But no Mike Conley. Are we outraged? People are not outraged. They are disappointed. A good percentage of them are hoping this motivates Mike and he plays with a chip on his shoulder in the second half. I don't really view him as a guy who needs a chip on his shoulder. Do you? Don't you think it's pretty much there, the level he's playing at? I guess if you have a chip on your shoulder and you can play 10 or 20% better, you'd take it. You'd take anybody getting 10 or 20% better. I think right now all the motivation is apparent when you look at the standings. Yeah. Because this team will rise and fall as a team. And because that there is a lot of yeah buts, oh, and these are the Hawks, I guess some Mm -hmm. year – in the recent past, the Hawks were good, but flame. I couldn't even tell you the year because I don't give a crap. But I've heard it. I've heard. I've seen headlines, but I don't investigate the story because it's meaningless. It has no bearing. I don't waste my time with stuff that have no has no bearing on what the Jazz are trying to accomplish. So I don't hear. I don't want to hear about the Hawks. I've heard it. And I don't even know the year. And I know you do because you're a numbers nerd. And so you go into all that crap. But for me, I swat it away. And all this stuff of yeah, but, that's all the motivation you need. Because everybody out there, everybody, every single body doesn't believe that the Jazz are finals worthy. So some stupid little all-star snub, while a disappointment in the moment, pales in comparison to the motivation that is out there. Because the second you lose a fourth game in the postseason, unless I guess it's the finals, maybe conference finals, certainly not first or second round if you should lose in either of those two rounds, everybody's going to come out and say, See? And so that motivation right there is staring Quinn Snyder and every assistant and Donovan Mitchell and every player on that team right in the face every day. You might as well put it, they put somebody who does the marquees 
on the freeways tries to be funny on Mondays, and I know it's hard to do in a limited thing, but that's what they should put out there in on those marquees. Jazz, you're not going to get to the finals, quote, says everybody, because that's what they're facing. So that's the motivation, and it's right there every single game. It's Shaq. That's the moment of the year. That's where it all crystallizes, right? I mean, Shaq said what a gazillion other people are saying, but he said it, he's Shaq, and he said it on national TV, and he said it to Donovan in a postgame. And that, in a nutshell, is everything you just uh, said. Shaq spoke for a lot I of love people. you, man, but I don't, th- I, don't think, I don't think you can do it. All right. That's it? That's all you got to say? All right. <laughs> okay. That's what I wanted to hear. You like you, brother. That's what happened. As Shaq impersonations going, that was that was something. It was the 2015 Hawks, 60 wins. PK, they got swept by Cleveland. Don't do it! Ah! 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 Don't want to know it. Don't and, care. And then no LeBron came back to from, now. And then LeBron came back from three-one to beat the Warriors. It was one one month of LeBron being LeBron, breaking everybody's hearts and getting the championship for Cleveland. All right. Coming up, 9 o'clock hour, Larry the Lakers is going to check in at some point, so you got that to look forward to. It's the Jazz and the Lakers tonight, and more on that game coming up next. Stay with us.